You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we are taking another step in this set of sermons called Formed where we're just thinking about what does it mean for Christ to be formed in us? And and what is that? What is a fully formed heart? This is the way we have been talking about it. A formed heart is a heart that reflects Jesus reflexively. That's a fully formed heart, a heart that loves what Jesus loves, a heart that hates what Jesus hates, a heart that is grieved by the things that grieve the heart of Jesus Right? That's a fully formed heart. This is what uh, Paul means when he's looking at the Galatian church and says, I want Christ to be formed in you. Right? This is what he's after. A heart that looks like this deep down at the level of our heart, where it matters most that we are formed, that our hearts are reflecting Jesus reflexively. Now, what does it look like? What's required for us to form our heart? For a heart to be fully formed, what do you need? What do I need? How does that happen in a human heart? Now, there is a lot we can say about that. The Bible does not give one-dimensional answers to that question. Uh, But here are two foundational things the Bible says in response to that. How do we form our heart? What is a, a heart that is formed around the person of Jesus? What's required to see that formation? The Bible is clear that formation requires grace. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It requires grace. Without grace, there is no formation in our life. Right? Formation. Your heart being formed around Jesus starts with grace. It starts with the Lord bringing a dead heart to life. It starts with him giving you a new heart, making you a new creation. It starts by grace. And a fully formed heart is sustained by grace. We never, in the Christian life, we never outgrow our need for grace, do we? We never outgrow our need for the good news of Jesus. We never outgrow that. This is why we've said that for our deformed hearts to be reformed, we have to continually see the person and promises of Jesus. We have to to fix our gaze on the person and promises of Jesus. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, We become like Jesus as we behold Jesus, as we stare at the person of Jesus, as our hearts delight in the person of Jesus. It's in doing that that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. So this was the first kind of half of this set of sermons is we're just exploring that sort of terrain, uh, the person and promises of Jesus. And we spent uh, those weeks in the four G's where we talked about how God is great, how God is good, how God is gracious, and how God is glorious. Because apart from the grace of God, the person and the promises of Jesus, we will not change. It requires grace. And if we're going to take the person and promises of Jesus, and we're going to get them down into our hearts where it matters most, and then we have to find those promises in the Bible, right? They're contained in passages, and we have to learn how to preach those passages to our hearts. Every one of us in here need to be a good preacher. Not for the sake of you preaching to other people, but for the sake of you preaching to your own heart. Formation requires grace. Secondly, the Bible is clear that formation requires grit. Both grace and grit are are needed. Uh, So just think about the language, again, of the New Testament. We covered some of this terrain just a couple of weeks ago. But think about the language of the New Testament. Uh, When it's talking about our growth in godliness, 
or our formation. Think about the language it uses, words like, phrases like, work out your salvation, strive for holiness. Words like toil and labor and press on and persevere. Those are all sort of New Testament words to describe what is involved in our formation, in our growth in godliness. And this is why we've said throughout this set of sermons that yes, our hearts must see the person and promises of Jesus and our hearts must be trained. Our hearts must be trained. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 6, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Get in the gym and train yourself for godliness. Now that is athletic imagery. And every athlete knows this. Every athlete knows that you will not be great, whatever your sort of craft is, whatever your sport is, you will not be great without grit. You just won't. Greatness requires grit. Every athlete knows that. Every musician knows that, right? You don't become great at the piano uh, by liking a piano, by thinking a lot about a piano. You become great at the craft of playing a piano through grit, right? It takes hours and hours and hours at a piano training your hands. And in 1 Timothy 4, 6, Paul is saying what is true for every athlete, what is true for every musician, is also true for every Christian. Formation requires grace-empowered grit. It requires that. If you want to be formed into the image of Jesus, Christ to be formed in you, your heart formed so that it reflects Jesus reflexively, if you want that, it requires grace-empowered grit. Or as we said a few weeks ago, new hearts, that's the grace of God, right? This new creation, a new you, a new heart. If you've been rescued by Jesus, he has given you a new heart, and that new heart needs new habits. There is no change in our life apart from a change in habits. New hearts need new habits. Now, this is the terrain we're exploring now together. And last week, Tripp uh, Lee, he started us down this road. Uh, he explored kind of the first habit we wanted to platform to consider. If we're going to train ourselves for godliness, what sort of habits do we need to create? What, what sort of disciplines do we need to undertake in our life? What sort of workout regimens, if you will, do we need to develop? And he spent time talking last week about that first habit, the habit of Bible reading. Now, notice we're saying the habit of Bible reading. We're not talking about a spasm of Bible reading, right? We're talking about a habit of Bible reading, like daily opening up the scriptures, meditating on what we're seeing there, sitting with the Lord over his word. That, that's what we're talking about, a habit of Bible reading. And as we do that, the Lord is doing that forming work. Every time you open up the Bible, in, in ways that are oftentimes imperceptible to you. Jesus is forming your heart. As you open up the scriptures and you see who God says he is, what God says about himself, as you see what God says about you, as you see what God says about the world around you, he is forming your heart. The habit of Bible reading is, a found, is foundational to your formation, to my formation, to our collective formation. It is a foundational habit. Now we're going to explore the second one today. Last week was the habit of Bible reading. Today is the habit of prayer. The habit of prayer. 
Now, Romans 12, I love this passage that we're in. If you uh, have the ESV version of the Bible, that translation, then right above verse 9, you're going to see this heading, and it's just alerting you to the theme of this passage. And the heading is, Marks of the True Christian. So what Paul is doing here is he is showing you, hey, here are marks in an authentic Christian life. These ought to be showing up in people who are followers of Jesus. That's what he's getting at starting in verse 9. So he says things like this, let love be genuine. That's a mark of a Christian, that our love is genuine, our love toward Jesus, our love toward one another. It's sincere, it's pure, it's open-hearted. Let love be genuine, he says. Abhor what is evil. It should be a mark of every Christian. We hate the things Jesus hates. Hold fast to what is good. It should be a mark of every Christian. We love the things. We're holding fast to the things that Jesus loves. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That ought to be a mark of every Christian. That is uh, Paul inviting the church into some friendly competition. He's like, hey, look around. You see everybody around, around you? What if you got into a competition with them on heaping honor on honorable people? Just looking around and finding ways to honor people, to speak life into people. What if you just created a competition where you were trying to outdo one another in doing that, showing honor? So that should be a mark of every Christian. Then to verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Mark of a Christian. Be patient in tribulation. Mark of a Christian. And then he says this, the last phrase in verse 12. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. And it's that phrase, those four words, be constant in prayer, that I want to explore with you today. Be constant in prayer. Or we could say, develop a habit of praying. Be constant in prayer. It's going to come in two parts. The first are the last two words. Be constant in prayer, in prayer. So what is prayer? Uh, What is that? I I love, anytime I'm answering answering that question, I love to go to the New City Catechism. I would commend it to any family in here who has young kids. It's a simple question and answer. It's in that sort of a format to teach good theology. And so question 38 of the New City Catechism asks that very question. What is prayer? And here's its answer. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. That's what prayer is. It's pouring out our hearts to God. And I love that definition. Those words, pouring out our heart to God. Those words give us eyes to see that so much of what we call praying is is missing the essence of prayer. It is pouring out our hearts to God. It's not just saying prayers. It's, it's pouring out our heart to God. Um, I, I love how Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, again, it's just one of those I would commend to you on uh, prayer in your life. If you want to grow in prayer, this would be a great book for you to consider. Uh, Paul Miller, A Praying Life. But I love the way he talks about prayer in that book. He says, it's the real you meeting the real God. The real you. It's not the you that you so often present to people, Right? The put-together you, the you that's got it all figured out, the you that doesn't have any fear, any worry, any fill-in-the-blank. It's not that you. It's the real you, right? The you that's insecure, the you that's messy, the you that is just always struggling on some level with sin and your depravity and the pull of, of a fallen nature. It's that you, the emotionally unstable you. 
the unpresentable you. It's that you, the real you, not the make-believe you, not the, the one you present. To, it's, it's the real you meeting the real God. It's pouring out our hearts to God. That, that's prayer. Now, I, I just, I love that, that way of seeing prayer because I think in a lot of ways, again, it just, it helps us see that there is a massive difference between saying prayers and honest praying. Saying prayers and, and, and then a way of praying that just pouring out our hearts to the Lord. There's a difference between those two. Um, anytime I talk about prayer, I love to refer to uh, Charles Spur, uh, Spurgeon. Several years ago, I read a biography of uh, Spurgeon, and I, I was actually really surprised to read in that biography. He just The biographer is commenting on his life and his ministry, and uh, one of the things he said is that uh, Charles Spurgeon was a better prayer than he was a preacher, uh, considered one of the best preachers in church history. And he's like, no, he was a better prayer than he was a preacher. I, I love that about him. And at one point he's uh, talking about his life and uh, he brought up, the biographer brought up the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uh, talks about prayer. Uh, and one of the things Jesus says about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, don't be like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases. They're just saying prayers, thinking that they'll be heard because of their many words, right? They're just saying prayers. And then the biographer went on to, to say this. He said, you know, it wasn't until people prayed with Charles Spurgeon that they realized they weren't honestly praying. They were just saying prayers. They were really just doing something very similar to what Jesus says, don't do in Matthew 6. He was an honest prayer. He's pouring out his heart to God. This is what prayer is. It's not saying words. It's pouring out your heart to a God who loves you. That is prayer. Now, when you think about just a general pattern of prayer, the acronym ACTS has been a helpful tool that people have used to teach on prayer. So if you just want like a pattern for what sort of shape your prayer should have, the acronym ACTS works. It's a helpful teaching tool. So you've got A, that's for adoration. It's praising the person of God. It's praying back to God his own goodness. It's, it's adoring God. It's praising God. That's A. Then you've got C. That's confession. In prayer, we get to honestly pour out our heart to God as we bring our messiness, our sin, our failings, our shortcomings. We find ourselves confessing and repenting of sin in our prayer. That should be a part of the pattern of our praying. The T is thanksgiving. That we're acknowledging and thanking God for the many graces in our life. There is not a person in this room watching online who does not have a billion things to thank God about, right? This week is a great week to just practice that habit of thanking God in your praying for the many graces that are evident in your life. And then the S is supplication. That's, that's bringing our requests to God. It's making ask of God. When Paul Miller, again, in A Praying Life, when I love what he says, and I agree with him. He says, if you want to sum up the, the, the New Testament teaching on prayer, and you had to sum it up in one word, you only got one word to describe, what does the New Testament teach about prayer? Here's his one word, ask. And I think that's true. Jesus is just constantly saying to us, will you just ask me? It makes me wonder how many things we are going without in our life just because we refuse to ask. So, so he's inviting us to ask, to, to make your request known before the Lord. It's supplication. I, I love what John Newton says. He, he reminds us, he says, we're coming to a king. So large petitions with us bring. 
For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Yes! So as God's kids, we get to ask all sorts of things, right? It's just the pattern of our praying, adoring God, confessing our sin, thanking him, supplication, making our ask known before the Lord. I just want to take a moment just to pause and encourage you. Prayer is a blood-bought privilege. Jesus has, has opened up the door for you to pray to God in a very personal way, in ways that people in the Old Testament really couldn't even imagine, right? The author of Hebrews says, no, you, you, you don't need a mediator for this. You don't need to go through a priest for this. You, you don't need any of those things. Jesus is your mediator. So now you can come straight to God. He says, you, you can feel free to approach the throne of grace with boldness, it is a blood-bought privilege. Jesus has secured everything you need, not just to be in the room with God where you can like talk to him from here to over there. No, he has secured everything you need to crawl up into the lap of God and to pour out your heart before him. With an open heart just to talk to him, to pour out your heart to him. So Paul says, be constant in prayer. Be constant. Here's the second half of the sermon. Be constant in prayer. So, so yes, pray, but Paul is after a certain sort of a life with prayer. He's saying be constant in prayer. Now, that word translated be constant is a, a Greek word that is also translated uh, continue steadfastly. Uh, same word is translated uh, be devoted to prayer. Right? All those, it's the same Greek word coming out in all those sort of different English ways of saying it. And you see this throughout the scriptures. And you see that word, be constant, devoted, continue steadfastly. You see that word often linked to prayer. Uh, let me give you some illustrations of this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down in Jerusalem. And there, in that upper room, they say, the scriptures say, these, all with one mind, were continually devoting. That's our word, be constant. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, this is uh, the early church. They were continuing, uh, continually devoting themselves, our same word, be constant, continue steadfastly. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves, same word, be constant, continue steadfastly. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, continue steadfastly. Again, that's our same word. Be constant. Be devoted. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, if we don't learn anything else about prayer from these texts, here is one thing we could say about them. There's enough linkage between this idea of being steadfast, devoted, constant, and prayer that, that we could say, in the scriptures, it's considered normative Christianity. Devotion, prayer. Constant, prayer. That that is considered normative in the Christian life. Or, or as Paul would say, it's just a mark of a true Christian. That, that we are praying to God. That, that we pray. It's, it's a mark of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So what does it mean to be constant in prayer? Well, I think one way of maybe thinking about that phrase, be constant in prayer, 
is it means that prayer has moved beyond something we occasionally do to something that defines us. Just, it, it's the, it, it just describes our life, uh, the way we're living, the way we're operating. Uh, to be constant in prayer means that we have gone from being a person who prays to a praying person. And there's a lot of difference between those two. A praying person is just sort of defined by just the way they're operating. Uh, let, let me ask you this question. When do you pray? If you're just to look at your life and try to answer the question, when do I pray? How would you answer that when you think about your life and look at your life? I, I think for most people, prayer lives in, a, we might just consider it a very small box. So that box of prayer might be before a meal. It might be uh, maybe before we go to bed. It's, it's just living in a very small box in our life. And part of what Paul is intending to do in a passage like Romans 12 is he is trying to rip prayer out of that small box. He's trying to get it into the entirety of your life. And let me just be clear on this. Paul is not, when he says be constant in prayer, Paul is not saying, I want you to reprioritize prayer in your life. So I want you to, if prayer is number nine on your list, let's see if we can get it up to number three on your list. That is not what Paul is after when he says be constant in prayer. What Paul is after, he's saying, no, I don't even want you to see prayer like that. I don't want you to think about prayer as something on your list of things that you're doing. I want you to see prayer as the thing that permeates everything that you do in life. Everything on your list is just done by prayer, through prayer, in prayer. That's what it means to be constant in prayer. That's what it means to be a praying person. Is the posture of your life is one of prayer. That, that's what he means when he says be constant in prayer. Paul wants prayer out of the box. He doesn't just want a bigger box in your life for prayer. He wants it out of the box and into every part of your life, the entirety of your life. He wants you to pray always in every circumstance, in big and small moments, in painful and pleasurable moments, in good and bad moments. He wants prayer to saturate all of that. Now, again, I just want to, I want to make sure I clarify this. Paul is not saying, hey, prayer is the only thing I want you to do. So be constant in prayer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is the way, prayer, that I want you to do everything. That's what it means to be constant in prayer, a praying person. We're doing everything with the posture of openness and communication in prayer with God, just living before him and with him. We're doing everything like that. Be constant in prayer. Now, why should we be constant in prayer? Why? Gosh, that could be a whole set of sermons in and of itself, but let me just give you two reasons why Paul would say something like this, be constant in prayer. Um, one, we could say this, uh, why be constant in prayer? For the sake of friendship. For the sake of friendship. Uh, you could tell the whole story of the Bible with friendship as the framework. So if you think about the storyline of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, we had a rich, vibrant friendship with the Lord. In Genesis chapter 3, you know that story. If you've read through that part of the scriptures, our first parents sinned against God. And when sin was introduced into the world, our friendship with God fractured. It, it ruptured. And then you get to the New Testament, and here comes the person of Jesus. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he reopens a friendship uh, with God to us. 
A friendship is reopened. And you read in the New Testament just a startling passage like this in John 15, verse 15. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, no longer do I call you servants. You know what I call you now? I call you friends. You can tell the whole story of the Bible like that. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus feel like a dear friend to you? Just think about that question for a moment. Does Jesus feel like a dear friend, a best friend, a, like, like a friend that sits closer than it? Does he feel like that to you? I think it is very possible to be in the family of God. So you've been rescued, you're in Christ, right? So you have union with God. I think it's possible to be in the family and yet lack friendship. And I actually think it describes so many of our lives with the Lord. We're in the family, it's just our friendship is, is withered, it's not rich, it's not vibrant. And, and why do we pray? What well, we pray to cultivate that friendship. Now, think about any friendship. What's needed to cultivate a friendship? Uh, concentrated conversation is needed to, to cultivate a friendship. So just think marriage. Marriage requires looking at your spouse face to face and talking to them, sharing your heart, pouring out your heart, drawing out their heart so they get to share their heart with yours. That, that is part of developing a good friendship. If you're not doing that and you're married, you can bank on you probably don't have a great friendship. Because friendship requires that sort of concentrated conversation. And this is why you see it in Jesus' life with God the Father. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16 says, But he withdrew to desolate places and there prayed. Matthew 14, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. It's just concentrated conversation. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. This is just normative in the life of Jesus, and he is expecting his followers to follow in his footsteps, right? So this is why he says in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, go, when, by the way, not if, but when, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your friendship with Jesus needs concentrated conversation, setting aside time to talk to God, to pour out your heart to God. And it needs casual conversation, both concentrated and casual. Again, just think of marriage again. If you're going to cultivate a friendship in a marriage, you need a lot of as-you-go sort of conversation as you go sort of talk, where as you're going, as you're driving, as you're shopping, as you're doing all the things you do in life, as you do that, you're sharing your heart. You're pulling out the heart of your spouse. For a friendship to be rich and vibrant, it needs that as you're going type of conversation. And that is also true of your friendship with Jesus. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. Just everywhere, at all times, pray. Again, prayer is not the only thing we do, but it's how we do everything. It's, it's our posture. It's the way we do it all. So as we go to work, as we go to school, as we drive, as we walk, as we play, as we engage with our family, as we do all the things that make up our life, we're in this constant conversation with Jesus. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk, and he called it practicing the presence. He wrote a book on it, practicing the presence. And I love that title 
He's just saying we, we've got to find ways to constantly be in that, that ongoing conversation with the Lord. We've got to habituate ourselves, train ourselves so that our, our whole life is lived before God and with God. In, in every moment where we're making decisions, before we make those phone calls, before we say this, before we say that, we're just in constant conversation with God. We're in, we, we have a friendship with God, right? Where we're talking to him just as we're going. And listen to how Brother Lawrence describes this kind of life. He says this, there is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of continual conversation with God. That's what it means to be constant in prayer, right? It's how we develop this friendship with the Lord. To have a rich, vibrant friendship means we have to get into the gym of prayer. Concentrated conversation, casual conversation. So, so maybe you could just ask yourself now, how is your prayer life? What does my prayer life look like? That's not a question to guilt you or try to make you feel. It's just for you to be able to honestly look at your life and to ask questions about, am I cultivating that friendship with the Lord? Why would Paul say, be constant in prayer? Well, one is for the sake of friendship. Secondly, it's for the sake of formation. Uh, for the sake of formation. We are called by God to train ourselves for godliness. And prayer is a vital part of the training. Prayer is vital for your formation. Uh, can I illustrate this and can I do that with a guitar? If you'll let me do that, uh, we're gonna do this with a guitar. I have no idea how this is about to go, so pray for me. Um, little known fact, when I was uh, in my early 20s, I thought I was gonna be the next Chris Tomlin. <clears throat> um, and then all of my dreams ran into a wall. You know what that wall's called? Reality. And I realized, wow, I can't sing. That's gonna be hard to do that, right? Uh, but back in the day, I did play uh, the guitar a little bit. And uh, not good, by the way. So you need to lower your expectations right now. But I did play a little bit. And back in the day, while I played the guitar, one thing I learned about a guitar is that for a guitar to be played right, it first has to be tuned. Right, so there's six strings and all of those strings have to be tuned rightly. And when they're tuned rightly, it sounds right, right? So you can put your fingers on the frets and you can strum a chord and that sounds right, right? All the, the strings are working together, the notes are working together, right? Isn't that amazing? You have never heard the guitar played that well in your life before. So uh, that's a picture of a formed heart. Let, let that be our picture, our metaphor for what a formed heart looks like. Every one of our strings are tuned to the heart of Jesus. Our heart is reflecting Jesus reflexively. So now when our heart gets strummed, it's playing a beautiful chord right, that looks a lot like Jesus. But here is all of our problem. There is a pull in all of our life to deformation, right? There's an internal pull uh, toward deformation. To a, uh, maybe we could think of it as a, uh, as a pull toward uh, being out of tune, the strings of our heart being out of tune. And that inward pull, the Bible has a name for it. It's called the flesh, right? It's that old part of us that's still at war with God, that mistrusts God. We all feel this, right? There's not a person in here who doesn't feel this. 
Um, we all do. We may have new hearts, but our new hearts are not yet perfect hearts. I, I was sitting on the back porch last night just fighting my flesh, just feeling that sort of inward pull toward deformation. Right? This is the reason that we all have a tendency to stray from the Lord, why we all can wake up and find ourselves in places that we shouldn't be. It's just that deforming work where, where that string gets pulled in the wrong direction. But it's not just an inward sort of pull that leads to deformation. It's also an external pull toward deformation. Right? We live in the world. And the Bible, when it's using that word world, is talking about the sort of collective godlessness of a society, right? And, and we talk about this all the time, how uh, the church is not the only one trying to make disciples. Jesus is not the only disciple maker, right? Our culture does a great job of making disciples. The collective sort of godlessness around us is doing a great job of making disciples, Right? It's constantly pulling our hearts away from Jesus so that it does not reflect Jesus reflexively. So in all of our lives, this is not an uncommon moment for us to leave on a Sunday and man, our heart is tuned perfectly. I mean, it is going great. And then we get to Thursday and all heck breaks loose and it doesn't sound so good anymore. When our hearts get strummed, I mean, that's gross, isn't it? That's terrible. But, but this is all of our experience. This is your life. It's my life. It's what's happening to us consistently. That we're being deformed, pulled in a way that we're being, um, we're, we're out of tune with Jesus. The notes of our heart are just not in tune with him. So what do we do about that? What do you do about it? What do I do about it? Well, here's one means that the Bible gives you to retune your heart. It's called prayer prayer. So we find a time tomorrow and we give concentrated conversation to the Lord. We open up our Bibles. We listen to the Lord. We talk to the Lord. We pour out our heart before the Lord. And it's a conversation, right? So conversations are a dialogue. It means we talk and we listen. God talks and then he listens. And do you know, do you know what is amazing about the Lord? He loves to talk to his kids, to you. He loves to talk to you. When you gather with some of your friends for concentrated conversation with the Lord and you open up a bi uh, the Bible and you read a chapter and then you pray that chapter, God is just doing that work as you do that in ways that are going to be imperceptible to you. He's doing that work of retuning your heart, of taking your heart, and retuning it to the right note. And then when you develop casual conversation with the Lord, you're just developing that as you go conversation where you're just, your whole life is lived before God and with God, just practicing the presence, right? So as you work, as you recreate, as you engage with your family, as you do everything you're doing, you're just always talking to the Lord practicing the habituating yourself to God is here right now in this moment. He wants to lead me and show me and guide me and be here with me right now. When you do that, there's that retuning that happens. So now on Thursday, when our heart gets strummed again, we're back. 
and it's sounding a lot like Jesus, right? It's back. It, it sounds correct again. Exit guitar. That's what's happening when you pray. In ways that are imperceptible to you, God is taking the notes, the strings in your heart, and he's tuning them back to him. So let me give you three encouragements and then we're done. Just three quick encouragements. If we want to develop the habit of prayer for the sake of friendship with God, for the sake of formation, if we want to develop the habit of prayer, let me just give you some things to think about as we finish up here. Number one, I want to encourage you to pray the word, to pray the word. The Bible is meant to be read, but the Bible is not just meant to be read. The Bible is meant to be read and prayed. I love how Paul connects these two in Ephesians 6, where he says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray at all times. He's connecting these two things together, reading the Bible, taking the word, and prayer. They should always come together in our life. I love how Joel Beek describes it. He says, when you read the Bible, do so with intent to respond to God with prayer. Yes, every time you read the Bible, respond to God in prayer. In this way, habit one, reading the Bible, and habit two, prayer. These two go hand in hand. They are married in our life. Right? They, they always come together. These two habits are the foundational habits that every other habit in your life is going to be built on. Word and prayer. Pray the word. Second encouragement is plan to pray. Pray the word and then plan to pray. Uh, a guy named James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. And in one chapter, he talks about a study done in 2001 where a group of researchers got together about 250 people. And they're going to try to help these uh, people exercise more. And they put them in three groups. And let me just describe the things that happened in each group. Group number one was a control group. So they were told nothing. They weren't given anything. It was just, you're in a group and we would just like for you to exercise. Go for it. That was one, the control group. Group number two is uh, a group and they got the why. So they were given articles about the benefits of health, right? They had lectures about how it's helping with heart disease and all these other things. So they were given a massive why to exercise. Like, this is the reason you should have exercise in your life. And then group three, they got the why and they were forced to make a plan. Everyone in group three had to, uh, had to complete this sentence. During the next week, I will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on, they had to fill in the blank, this day, at, fill in this blank, this time, and in, fill in this blank, this place. So date, time, and place. I'm going to exercise, and I'm going to do it in this specific time, on this specific day, in this specific place. Now, the question the researchers are trying to figure out is, where is the big gap going to be? Is it going to be between group one and two that if you can just give a person a why, a good compelling why, then they'll get about the work of exercising and doing like this new habitual thing. Is that going to be the big uh, divide or is the big divide going to be, be between group two and three? Is the plan going to be the big sort of significant uh, marker for what really gets people moving in life and developing new habits in their life? And here is what they found. There was virtually no difference between group one and two. 
Group one and two, they, even with the huge, big, compelling why, they, that, those two groups of people, about 35% of them developed habits around exercise. The huge sort of line was between groups two and three. It went from roughly 35% of those in groups one and two exercising to over 90% of group three. Okay, let me translate what that would mean for you. A Sunday sermon will have virtually no impact in your life unless you create a plan for Monday. You just heard a big compelling why on prayer. This is the reason you should be praying. Be constant in prayer. It will have virtually no impact on this week unless you develop a plan for praying. This is why you need to plan to pray. Plan to pray. So tomorrow, you need to plan 10 minutes of Bible reading and maybe just five minutes of concentrated conversation with the Lord. This is when I'm going to do it tomorrow, Monday. This is the time I'm going to do it. This is the place I'm going to do it in, in that little green chair in my living room. That's where I'm going to do it tomorrow, right? Plan your praying. A simple plan is worth so much more than good intentions. Just a simple plan. This is when I'm going to do it. So can I just encourage you, schedule five minutes tomorrow to pray. Schedule five minutes every day to pray. But you got to schedule, like the day before. This is when, this is where I'm doing it. Schedule five minutes. Um, set three reminders on your phone, maybe one at 10, one at two, one at five, just to give you a prompt to just engage in a casual conversation with Jesus. Just as a way to remind your heart that your life is meant to be lived before God and with God. Maybe bookend your day with prayer. See if you can develop the habit tomorrow of I'm gonna wake up and here's the first, this is one of my goals. The first thing I wanna do when I wake up, I want my first thought and word to be spoken to God. And then Laura and I, just as we're going to bed every night, we pray together. Just booking, bookend our day with prayer. The first thought and the last thing we do, plan to pray. And then lastly, and I'm out of time here, but let me just give you this encouragement. Plan to pray and then plan your praying. Plan your praying. I, I just want to encourage you to develop a simple list of things to pray for. It doesn't have to be complex but just to develop a list of things that you're praying for. Here are the things I'm gonna pray for every day. Just as a way to remind your heart of what the important things for you to be praying are. Like for instance, one of those things is for my one. I wanna pray for my one every day. So what are those things each day you need to pray for? And then what are the things that each week you wanna pray for? So maybe Sunday is Stonegate. Maybe Monday is marriage if you're married. Maybe Tuesday is your, your home group. Maybe Wednesday is the world. Maybe Thursday is your neighbors. Maybe Friday is uh, for your family. Maybe Saturday is for your city. Just what, what am I going to pray for each day? Just a simple way to plan your praying. Uh, and parents, this would be a great way for you to pastor your kids, to help them develop just a simple way of keeping track of what they're praying for, when they're going to pray. It'd be a great thing for your family. So Stonegate, can we take the plunge together? Training ourselves for godliness. Training ourselves in the spiritual gym of prayer. Working out, developing the muscles, developing the habit. Amen? Let's pray together. Just want to give you a moment to interact with the Lord and... 
going to give time for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. You know, the Christian life starts with prayer. It starts with a cry to God. God, save me, rescue me. And maybe you're here today and that's, that needs to be your first prayer to God. It's just right now where you are just holding up your life and saying, God, here I am. I'm trusting in the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Save me. And for all of us, the Lord just inviting us to grow in prayer, to be constant in prayer, to develop those muscles, those habits for the sake of our friendship with Jesus, for the sake of our formation. So how can you do that? How can you help others around you do that? 